at the moment, and uh, we're sort of in the home straight now before, uh, before Easter. Um, and uh, this passage that we've come to is um, in sort of the section that is full of hope towards the end of the book. And uh, I think this, this uh, passage is all about um, the need to not forget God and um, how we remember God. I, I don't know about you, I, I'm hopeless at remembering things sometimes. I came to this realization as I thought about this sermon this week, uh, as I went down to breakfast and at one point was pouring from our big, um, our big jug of milk into my cereal. I looked down and realized that I was still holding the kettle and just filling it up with hot water. I don't know whether you've ever done that sort of thing. I'm hopeless at remembering certain things, as Joe well knows, with uh, uh, wedding anniversaries and birthdays and things like that. Um, being forgetful can at times be intensely annoying. I know this. I've been told. Um, Sometimes, though, when it comes to our faith, it can be intensely dangerous. And actually, to forget the core of our faith is to lose our faith. And there is a real danger um, that Isaiah, God through Isaiah addresses here, which is the danger of our hearts forgetting. And it isn't just the problem of kind of losing the facts, of the facts kind of falling out the ears um, as, we just, as stuff just drifts off. But the battle to keep the main things that you know in your head at the center of your heart. So it's not just a kind of a memory thing, it's a, it's, a, it's a heart thing. It's a concern to keep the priorities, the things that are absolutely central, um, that we think are central in the center of our hearts. And as you get older, it's one of those battles that we face, isn't it? I don't know whether you've had that. When you started out, if you've had kids or something, you kind of started out with great aspirations of how you would parent and that sort of thing. And then as, t- as time goes on, you just, you, all the things that you thought were great aspirations just actually become really weary, really hard work. And, this, and stuff just drifts to the, away from the center and onto the periphery. Or maybe... If you're married, for example, you, you, it's so easy to just forget the love that you had for your spouse at the start. It's, it's not that other things have come in and replaced that. It's just that you started to prioritize things that you didn't prioritize and, and stuff just gets to drift. Or in work, you start off with all sorts of aspirations of how you hoped you would begin to change the culture of your workplace. And actually, as time goes on, you realize that you are more changed by the culture of your workplace than the change you've been able to create. This passage is all about the dangers of that kind of forgetting. And with the risk, there is a reminder. With the risk, there is a reminder. But the danger, well, let's look at the danger first. The the real risk of forgetting God's love. Now, um, I've just realized. Rocky, I'm sorry, I didn't even put on the PowerPoint onto the computer. Okay, so if you've been here in previous weeks, we've had a map up. And you're going to now have to imagine the map on the screens behind me. If you haven't been here on previous weeks, I'm very sorry. There isn't a map. There's a map in in your head. And you've got to remember, Jerusalem is over here. That's where the people have been taken from. And they've been taken over to Babylon, which is somewhere over here on my map, which is about 700 miles away. The journey is actually a bit longer because, um, uh, because there isn't a direct route. And the people who are reading Isaiah for the first time, these sermons from Isaiah that have been recorded from them, are a long, long, long way from home. And what do you do if you are living in Babylon as they were, if, they, if you wake up every morning feeling the oppression of God's judgment? And it's not just that you're a, a, a migrant a long way away from home, but that you are a slave a long way away from home. That's what they were experiencing. And they knew the whole aim of the culture around them was to prevent them from passing on the things that were important to them onto their children. The whole aim, the whole aim of the culture that they were in was to break 
their will, their commitment to believing in an independent uh, uh, Jerusalem, an independent Israel. Now, what, what do you do when you wake up in that situation? As Israelites, they've started to get some wonderful promises from God through Isaiah. There are promises, and you'll know if you've been with us through this series, that they get these um, songs about this uh, wonderful uh, suffering servant king who will deliver them by the hand of the Lord. And so with those songs, they start to cry out. And did you notice in, uh, in verse 9, which is the, the start of the bit we, um, Graham read from, Awake, awake, arm of the Lord, clothe yourself with strength. Awake, as in days gone by, as in generations of old. And they make this appeal to God to act. And they start recounting some of the most famous exploits of God in the Old Testament. In fact, the most famous of them all, when God rescued Israel from, um, from Egypt, the story of the Exodus, the story of Moses. Uh, and uh, it says, that, awake, as in the days gone by, as in generations of old, was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces? Rahab, by the way, is how they talk about Egypt. It's got nothing to do with the Bible character Rahab, just to be a little bit unhelpful. Um, no connection with her at all. It's just Egypt. Who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so the redeemed might cross over? Do you remember the, the stories of Moses leading his people through the Red Sea that was parted in the middle and they kind of wandered right through? It's all about this great rescue as the people were brought from slavery and into the promised land. And they are crying out to God and they are saying to God, God, you have done this kind of rescue in the past. Can you please do it today? Can you please do it? We're, we're, we're stuck over here in Babylon. You need us to bring us back, back to Jerusalem. Have you forgotten us? Have you forgotten us? They're crying out to God. And the voice of God then begins to take over. But before he comforts them, he starts to challenge them. And he says, um, this is in verse 12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mere mortals, human beings who are but grass? What are you scared of? God turns the question around. Not, I have forgotten you, as you think. But hold on a second. Who are you that you've forgotten me, that you're scared of other people? And he's saying, why are you so scared? Why do you doubt that I'm about to rescue you? As if they've lost sight of who God is and lost sight of how much God cares about his people. As if their circumstances have blinded them to God's love. I tell you, if you grew up with a sibling, or more than one sibling, and quite often um, siblings will say to their parents, um, who, who do you love more, uh, me or my sister or brother, it might be, um, just happened to be a sister in my case, um, and, and those kinds of, no, no, okay, no one, no one prepared to admit to that sort of insecurity, that's fine. Um, but lots of us, I think, do that sort of thing in life, don't we? And the temptation for God's people, whether it's whether they're living in Babylon and looking back in the history books of what God has done, or whether it's us looking back on this and reading this and thinking, oh God, I, I wish I lived in these kind of days because when I compare myself as I am now with how they were then, I'm tempted to believe that you might love them more than you love me. Do they matter more to you than I do? There's no comfort to remember for these people that God wants freed slaves because they're saying, we're the slaves now. 
And God says, it's not me who's forgotten, it's you. Just have a look at verse 12 again. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mere mortals? Human beings who are but grass, that you forget the Lord your maker, who stretches out the heavens and who lays the foundations of the earth. He's saying to them, before you try and awaken me to act, because you think I've the one, I'm the one who's forgotten, he's turning around saying, well, hold on, you are the ones who've forgotten. And it's not, this, this key, it's not that they've forgotten the facts. It's not as though their minds are empty, as though they don't know what their Old Testaments. They know exactly what God has done in the past. It's just that when they're recounting those facts, the history, it just comes with no faith. They can remember what God has done in the past. They just have no faith to believe that God will ever do it again. And that means they're desperately, desperately scared. Now, we know that what we're scared of shows us what we think is most powerful in all the world. And it's easy for us to remember every day to remember Bible stories of things God has done in the past to hear other people's experiences of God and to remember those things, hold them in our brains and yet to bring with them no faith. To have no impact on how you really live because you know in your heart of hearts the thing that really drives you is not the thought of what God can do in your life, it is what other people think of you. Or it's about the ill health you're worried that you might have or it's about your fear of getting old or your fear of death. And we know in our heads, if we're afraid of other things other than God, that probably means we've forgotten God. The reality is, though, it probably means we haven't necessarily forgotten the facts about God. It's not as though a bit more truth, a bit of reminder of the old is just necessarily going to awaken. It just means that our knowledge of God isn't at the forefront of our lives. There's no, there's no real faith there. I don't know about you. My, my life can go strangely untouched by the things that I think are the center of my life. And the center of my heart. And here God is calling his people out and he says, I haven't forgotten you, you've forgotten me. And it's a huge problem for us. Um, in 2 Peter 1, okay, so Peter, friend of Jesus, coming to the end of his life. And he's writing to Christians to encourage them as he's sort of reaching the end. And this is what he says. It's a really kind of um, bold thing. He says, see... I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you, might, you now have. So it's, really, it's a really striking thing to say, isn't it? See, I will remind you of these things, even though you know them and are already kind of firmly established by them. And then he says, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon be put aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. And the call to remember, it goes beyond kind of just, um, you know, remember, remember the facts. It, uh, but it's enter into your heart so that they are the things that drive you and stir you and move you. Can I tell you a little secret about how we do church here? This is a revolution, okay? Some of us might come to church and you hope that every week, uh, week by week, you come to hear something new, something clever, something insightful, something you've never heard before. And yet the whole culture of how we do church is deliberately set up to do the reverse. <laughs> to not necessarily give us new things week by week, 
The point of the songs we sing, the point of the sermons is to say all the old things that you probably already know, but we just need to challenge each other to to help us believe this stuff. To keep them front and center, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. That's what we're about as a church. Which is why God closes this section out in verse 16 by saying, wake up, you are my people. When did I ever let my people down? I who... This is what he says, I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who said to Zion, you are my people. This is the residue he wants them to have in the back of their heads to know they must never doubt. You are my people. You are my people. Wake up to that. Awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem. It's not like verse 9 was awake, awake, arm of the Lord, come on. Verse 17 is wake up, wake up, Jerusalem. You don't need to wake me up, God says. I need to wake you up. And uh, this is what he's waking them up to. Now, here's the question. Okay, so this is, this is the, that's the risk of forgetting. How do we begin to remember? How do we begin to remember? That's the second half of this. Now, there's a question, I think, hanging over the second half of this passage, or the passage of a whole, as a whole. You've got these people struck out in, in Babylon on our imaginary map. And the question at the heart of them is saying, come on, God, come and do something about it. Wake up, wake up. But behind the question is, God, don't you care about us? How do I know, Lord, that you really love us? How do, I, how do we know that you care about us as much as you cared about people in, in generations gone past? How would you answer that question? How do you answer that? People ask you those kinds of questions, don't they, sometimes when, when they know you're a Christian? How do you know that God really, how do you know that your God is the true God? How do you know that God really loves you? And so often we are tempted to look inside at our circumstances and our situation and the, and the story in our head sometimes can be filled with all sorts of doubt as we look at other people's lives and think, well, I know God really loves them <laughs> because I can see God really working in their life in some dramatic, a deep way and doing things for them and remarkable things. My life seems a bit mundane by, by comparison. And there's a great danger for us that we measure God's love for us through our circumstances rather than anything more substantial than that. Because our circumstances change, don't they? And if, you, if, you, if the measure is the circumstances, what, what do you do when the circumstances change and become difficult? This week is Valentine's Day and... Um, I was really struck. I had a look in. Uh, I was reading through a book yesterday, and, and I was really struck at how uh, there was. There just happened to be a stat in it about how many people um, split up over the Valentine's week, which is kind of a scary <laughs> statistic, isn't it? Um, and uh, and that sort of thing. And I wondered whether one of the reasons why people, so many people, split up over this particular week with Valentine's coming up, is because kind of couples get to Valentine's Day, look at what they're doing, and kind of ask this big question, which is. Oh my goodness, you thought I wanted to do that on Valentine's. You don't really know me at all, do you? The husband who says, I'm going to show you how much I love you with a pearl necklace when it would have meant a whole lot more if you'd just taken the bins out week by week. Or the fiancé who says, I love you by booking a holiday when they really need to just say sorry for the row that they created last week or whatever it is. So often we do this, we just misunderstand God's love so often. Because we're looking at our circumstances and thinking, God, how do I know that you love me because X, Y, Z is going on in my life? And we mistrust God.
Now, how does the rest of this passage help us? Well, this before we get there, before we get to verse 17 and the rest, we need to kind of roll this on a little bit forward, okay, to, to a point in the future, a few centuries on. And I want to take you to Jesus with the disciples, the hours just immediately before he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke's Gospel says that he's, he's crying and weeping to the point of sweating drops of blood over what's about to happen. And we celebrate and we talk about it at Easter, we talk about Good Friday, and uh, you know the story very well, I'm sure. Now, at that point in the Gospel story, clearly something is happening that is very, very bad, and clearly it's about to happen. The question that we always have when we get to Good Friday is to think, well, why does Jesus feel like this? What, what, what makes him so distressed in his spirit at that point? What is so bad? And the reason it's such an upsetting question is it can't be death. Because Jesus has been facing death for years and years through his public ministry. At one point, he's asleep on the boat. You remember the boat is about to tip over and he, Jesus wakes up and rebukes the disciples for not trusting God. It's, he's, not, he's not scared of death. In fact, he's, he's quite happy to tell the disciples, some of you are going to be killed for following me. And he doesn't say it kind of tongue-in-cheek. and He doesn't say it with any sense of kind of you ought to be, um, you know, desperately sad about that. But, but you know, you, you, you deal with that as part of being a Christian. So what's going on in Jesus in Gethsemane when he seems to be going weak at the knees? It's not fear of death. And if Jesus isn't scared of death, then we know something else far worse is going on. Something worse even than death. And do you remember the prayer he prays in Gethsemane? He prays it three times. Father, if it's possible for this cup to be taken away from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. What's the essence of the prayer? Let this cup be taken away from me. Now, look, look, at, look with me. Okay, Now look at verse 17. And let me read through it. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. This is what you need to be awake to, God is saying to his people. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that make men stagger. Among all the children she bore, there was none to guide her. Among all the children she brought up, there was none to take her by the hand. These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword, who can console you? Your children have fainted. They lie at every street corner like antelope caught in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord, with the rebuke of your God. Therefore hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. The cup of suffering that Jesus dreads in the Garden of Gethsemane is not the physical pain of death, not even death on the cross. It is this, it is the undiluted righteous judgment of God's wrath for sin. St drinking from it causes this disorientation of the body, staggering and mind, it feels like drunkenness and it's all about alienation from God, calamity after calamity, ruin after ruin. And for Jesus, all met completely alone. And this is why Isaiah writes this down to say, 
as you've gone away to Babylon, been taken off, carried off, you've begun to experience something of the judgment of God. But he says, here's the promise, here's the hope. I am taking out of your hand that cup, the cup of God's wrath, that you will never drink it again. And how that promise is fulfilled, it doesn't necessarily make sense. I mean, they would see something relent in terms of a return back to Jerusalem. They would see various things happen where they think maybe God is changing some things for us. But it only really makes sense when we see Jesus die on the cross and declaring as loud as he can, it is finished. That moment when God's wrath is satisfied in Christ, when Jesus faces separation from his Father, rejected by God the Father in order to consume God's wrath. As Paul puts it, God made him who hath no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God. And it's that, it's that event, more than looking in your circumstances day by day and thinking, what does this show me about how God feels about me, whether God loves me in the, in the, in the flow of, you know, every day? It's this event when God removes that cup that demonstrates God's true love for us. I don't know whether you find that comforting. I don't know whether you kind of look at that and think, oh yeah, but I'd, I'd just rather some clear cut, you know, demonstrations of God's love in some little things, the little things I'm going through right now. But let me tell you, let me tell you, I'll try and, as we kind of come to finish, let me, let me try and tell you some of the ways that I think this begins to make some changes. The first thing is that I think it means you have absolute certainty about how God feels about you today. I think as we drift through life, we kind of we go up and down, and we go up and down in our relationships with people, don't we? Kind of, at times we feel di- more distant to people, and then other times we feel closer to people, and different things happen, and we sort of imagine the same thing happens to God. After all, that's how we feel towards God a lot of the time. So we kind of we're looking for that kind of reassurance. How how are we doing today, God? And we look for kind of daily reassurance. And I guess we have those days, like the people of God, when, you know when they went through the Red Sea and they'd be looking back on that day and thinking, that was just amazing. That demonstrates like nothing else that God really loves his people in a truly remarkable way. We will never forget that most amazing miracle. And it's right, they would never forget it in one sense, although some years roll on. And then they look back and think, yeah, maybe that doesn't quite demonstrate how God feels about us today because we haven't seen a Red Sea moment this week. How do I know that God still loves me now? And yet at the moment when we see God's wrath poured out on Christ rather than on us, we know how God feels about us and we know that that is still true for us today. He drained it to the dregs. It is finished. It is done. It is complete. There, is, there isn't a second cup now stuffed into our hand. God saying, oh, actually, there was some still left over. Here you go. It's done. It's finished. And it changes us, that kind of view. There's a view, isn't there, of, of God that is just, it's hardwired into our culture. That, and it's a, in some ways, it's a credit to the, to the depth that our culture has grown up with the gospel, that we kind of, people around us assume that if there is a God who is real, who exists, then he must be a God of love. And that's, I mean, if you have to know anything about God, it's not a bad place to start necessarily. But there is an assumption that gets smuggled with that that says, 
If God loves me, if he truly loves me, then surely the main way I will experience that is through all kinds of experiential blessings in my life. And that, and that kind of expectation of God is just not robust enough when circumstances and difficulty, God leads us through all these kinds of heartache and painful things to, um, to demonstrate to us the flimsiness of our love for God. And as we begin to doubt God's love at those moments, we, we, kind of, we know it's true in our heads, but our, in our hearts, things begin to wax and wane. And we kind of think, oh, come on, Lord, my love language is, is in daily today blessings. Speak into that, please. And what do we need to do? We need to come back to the gospel and remember the Son of God sacrificing himself for us. Sometimes we, we're tempted to kind of look back on the cross and what Jesus was doing and think of it as a, an extravagant act of love that was ultimately fairly inconsequential. Like someone saying, I love you so much, I'm prepared to kill myself for you. You know, and that's it's a stupid, a ludicrous thing to do, isn't it? We don't throw our lives away like that. It's just a weird thing. But when we realize that God was angry at sin, God was so holy he needed to punish sin, God had to push his people away from him. He cannot tolerate to have sinners in his presence. But in order to win them back, he sacrificed his son according to his plan. And now we can come before him and call him my father. And we realize this act of love, of course, isn't about our circumstances. And the way he demonstrates his love isn't about any of those things. It isn't about how fulfilled we are, how much joy we necessarily experience in other things day to day because we know what he's given us is so much greater he's given us his son he's absorbed the wrath that our sins deserved he has forgiven us he has restored us back to him that is his banner of love over us today so that's the first thing it means we, we what however dark things are today we don't need to doubt god's love because he's shown us in the supreme act of real redemption, real justification that we stand before him because of what he's done to our sin and his wrath for our sin. But I guess the second really significant thing it changes is the fact that this kind of um, mercy that we see and the fact that his wrath is poured out onto Christ is something that is completely undeserved. It is completely undeserved. Some of us, are kind of, we don't struggle to imagine God being holy. We struggle to imagine how God could ever have anything to do with any of us. And we know that God hates sin so much, and we kind of therefore presume that God can't love us because we've all, you know, even when we come together now, we've got a flood of things that we've done wrong through this past week. And we kind of bring all this guilt and burden that to one degree is, is, is right, that there's real sin there. But then because of that, we presume that it is our place to get rid of all that stuff. And again, we come back to the cross and we realize it was Jesus who said on the cross, it is finished. Not us on a Sunday saying, it is finished. I've definitely repented. Definitely, definitely. I really mean it this time. He says, it is finished. And for some of us, we kind of, we assume on God's grace. We just kind of think, well, I can just saunter into God's presence because, you know, he will forgive me. That's what he does, isn't it? This passage reminds us in a totally opposite way what sin really deserves 
and it really breaks us and humbles us because we read through it and think, oh my goodness, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was my sin that he was drinking the dregs of God's wrath for. This is remarkable grace, but it isn't cheap grace. It isn't free grace by that measure. It is enormously expensive, costly grace. And now we enjoy this, not with a dismissive, well, I can get away with what I want. We, we understand something of the consequence of what our sin cost Christ. And we delight in the fact that God is our loving Heavenly Father who delights us, not because we've earned His love, but because, well, because of the work of His Son, because we are now in Christ, because He has drained the dregs of His wrath for us. And last of all, it means you can be certain about tomorrow. Verse 23 speaks about, in their context, a long way away from home, God transferring judgment away from his people on onto his enemies. Do you know the New Testament has a similar description of describing the fact that um, New Testament Christians will never, drink, will never drink the cup of Satan one day will. The point is basically the same. One of the reasons, one of the reasons week by week we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, we did it last week, we'll do it again I think next week, and the reason we're keen to celebrate the Lord's Supper is so often is precisely because of this picture, drinking from a cup, the grape juice that we're drinking down is a, is a picture for us of Christ's blood. That's what we consume because we will never consume the wrath in another cup because he has drained it to the dregs. The cup of God's wrath is empty. And the cup we drink is a reminder of Christ's blood that it is life-giving. And we celebrate the Lord's Supper week by week because we're so forgetful. We can't just leave it once a year. We can't just let it roll around to Easter to then be the moment when we remember all these things. We need to be reminded again and again and again. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you so much for your astonishing grace that we see poured out for us in the cross. Um, and Father, we thank you so much for sending Christ and that, um, and that at the moment when Jesus died, your wrath was consumed, that there is no wrath left, that we come before you this afternoon as friends, friends with the living God, able to call out to you and cry out to you and call you our loving heavenly Father. And that we're not full of doubt and we're not full of fear. And Father, we pray that you would help us to, to silence those fears, silence those doubts within our hearts. Silence the voices that, that remind us that we, are, um, that we are not just sinners, but who those voices inside our own heads and our hearts that would convict us again and again and again in order to condemn us. Father, we pray that you would help us to know release from those kinds of things, from, from false guilt, from, from false fear. No, Father, we pray that there would be real change and pray for a movement of your spirit in our hearts that we might uh, grow in obedience and in love for you. But Father, we pray that before you there would be no insecurities. We sing now. We pray that you would just help us to, to delight, to bask in your presence as children of the living God, as people free from condemnation. Amen.